This is the 26th in series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Hematology. And this podcast covers the good practice paper on the management of older patients with frailty and acute myeloid leukemia. Now, we're recording this uh, podcast over Zoom due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So we apologize for any loss in sound quality that may occur. I'm Dr. Mike Dennis. I'm a consultant hematologist based at the Christie Hospital in Manchester. And I've been involved in the uh, diagnosis and management of patients with acute myeloid leukemia throughout my time as a consultant. I developed my interest in the um, frailer, older patients with AML as a consequence of being the chief investigator of the less intensive one study. Firstly, in my talk, I'd like to talk about the diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. We'll move on to a more generalized assessment of the patients themselves, and then focus finally by movement on towards the discussion of treatment. It's been a really exciting time uh, in the management of acute myeloid leukemia in that we've seen huge progress, both in terms of understanding the diagnosis, but perhaps more importantly, since the introduction of anaticlax treatment into therapy, this has transformed the lives of patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So for the first part of this uh, podcast, I'd like us to focus on diagnosis. Historically, um, our approach to patients in terms of establishing the diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia has been based upon uh, morphology and also immunophenotyping. And over the last couple of decades, there's been a challenge in terms of making sure that all patients have an assessment of such genetics. I think that's all now very well established. And in our good practice paper, we underline the importance of all these features, but also reiterate and introduce the fact that uh, the molecular typing of patients uh, has really transformed both our understanding of the disease and therefore also uh, being able to assess things prognostically and increasingly uh, in the future, I hope, seeing the opportunity for more targeted treatments that would be available uh, for therapy. So there's an understanding that there are certain molecular subgroups, obviously MPM1, IDH1 and IDH2, where responses to treatment are very good. And the guidance that you can give to patients is obviously far more positive uh, in contrast to mutations such as TP53, where the outcome is exceptionally poor. We also assess the approach to the diagnosis of relapse, understanding that there may be clonal evolution, creating opportunities from a therapeutic perspective. Frail older patients um, often find bone marrow procedures quite difficult and you know, our consensus as experts on the writing panel was clear that if there is circulating disease, that there's no doubt that a comprehensive assessment can be undertaken by just evaluating the peripheral blood and not necessarily putting the patient through a painful procedure of bone marrow examination. Once the um, diagnosis has been established and in line with um, recommendations and clearly best practice, is that all patients should be discussed in a multidisciplinary team meeting to evaluate what would be thought to be the most optimal form of clinical management. 
In the second part, I'd like to introduce more the assessment of the individual patient and their ability to tolerate treatment. So historically, we always had an approach that patients should be evaluated as to whether they may be able to undergo intensive chemotherapy as intensive chemotherapy was really the only treatment that led to uh, complete remissions and an improvement in terms of overall survival. However, many of the older frail patients clearly are unable to undergo such treatment. And we've introduced a structured framework, how you can assess patients by using performance status, a robust evaluation of comorbidity, largely in line with the comorbidity score that's used in evaluating patients for allogeneic stem cell transplant, and introducing, importantly, a geriatric assessment such as the Edmonton frailty score. These uh, evaluations will enable you to understand the ability for, of the patient to successfully tolerate therapy. And it's part of that assessment of understanding the patient and also therefore correlating this with the underlying diagnosis. So the likelihood of their underlying AML to respond to therapy that will enable you to uh, make the best assessment possible for the appropriate clinical care management and chemotherapy if indicated. For the third and final part of uh, this podcast, I'd like to focus on the large area of uh, significant development in terms of treatment. Now, in the first part of the Good Practice paper, we discuss in some length um, the management with respect to supportive care and how a lot of this is based upon transfusion guidelines. But as we're moving into the realms of using disease-modifying therapy that can induce significant neutropenia, there's an increasing need to understand how that's safely delivered. And we believe there is evidence that would support the use of prophylactic antibiotic therapy, particularly in the form of quinolone treatment, and similarly, the use of mold active azole therapy, such as posaconazole or voriconazole. Now, less intensive treatments have been the mainstay of management of patients in this area for decades. And those standard therapies had been low-dose cytarabine or azacitidine, monotherapies that were very ineffective and led to patients' life expectancy being just a short number of months and often with uh, relatively poor quality of life. What's changed and perhaps the most important element of this good practice paper is the um, discovery that the addition of venetoclax to both of these standard treatments leads to a dramatic improvements. Now, the VRLE-A trial is really the, the fundamental study, which was a phase three randomized study, uh, which has demonstrated the improvement in terms of response rates and overall survival. So it was meeting that primary endpoint where in the standard of care arm, median overall survival was just 9.6 months. In the treatment arm with venetoclax, median overall survival was 14.7 months. So it doesn't sound like a huge prolongation in itself, but it has transformed practice. So the combination of venetoclax with azacitidine has moved response rates from around about 20% to in excess of 60%. 
Now, with this primary endpoint being met, it's been licensed by the FDA, and I'm delighted to note that in May of last year, the European Medicines Agency also approved venetoclax in combination with azacitidine. Challenge for us in the UK is obviously needs nice approval, and that came through in December of last year. So we now have an approved therapy of uh, venetoclax with azacitidine. This introduction of venetoclax to azacitidine has transformed the outlook for frail older patients with acute myeloid leukemia. This is particularly important for molecular subgroups, which we talked about in terms of the diagnostic features. So patients who have a nucleophosphamin 1, bracket MPM1, or an IDH1 and 2 mutation seem to have elite responses, with nearly all patients have achieving a response and that those responses appear to be particularly durable, such that those patients have the prospect of cure which wasn't present previously. Clearly other molecular subgroups, FLT3, TP53, have less satisfactory responses, but they still do respond in a, a sufficient manner that this is a, you know, a treatment that can be applied across the molecular spectrum. An additional recommendation we have is that there was the VRLE-C study, which was the combination of cytarabine with venetoclax therapy. And we believe that data is also assuring in that good responses occur. And this is particularly seen in the NPM1 molecular subgroup as evidenced by the fact the MHRA are in the process of approving this combination and its widely spread use continues in the VICTOR study, uh, which is being undertaken across the UK currently. Additionally, within the therapy areas, although venetoclax has clearly been a change for the standard of care, we look at emerging treatments, particularly the FLT3 inhibitors, and comprehensively go through other potential molecular targets and those that are in significant development. Relapse is important in that historically uh, frail older patients with acute myeloid leukemia relapsed, generally went on palliative care and only had a short number of months to live. Understanding that there could be a targeted treatment as a consequence of molecular mutation clearly is vital and this needs uh, a comprehensive diagnostic approach. Similarly, the realization that patients who have initially had a good response to therapy, be that azacitidine, lodosyrosine, or in combination with venetoclax, could benefit from rechallenge at relapse. I guess the sad reflection in many ways is that management of the frail older patients, despite these huge developments in terms of molecular understanding and the introduction of venetoclax, still is somewhat limited. And we need to evaluate a variety of clinical trials which can look at introducing new treatments that can improve further in terms of response rates, survival, and ever importantly, quality of life. Similarly, there are rare special situations that uh, we touch upon and, and give guidance in relation to, particularly around COVID, also acute promyelocytic leukemia, which is a relatively rare diagnosis in this patient group. But again, curative outcomes can be achieved by use of treatments such as arsenic trioxide and specific treatment where the disease is atypical in terms of being 
extra medullary in presentation. So in conclusion, this good practice paper, I think it's a vital piece of work in terms of guidance regarding the management of older patients with frailty and acute myeloid leukemia. I'd like to summarize that the key developments in terms of uh, molecular stratification from a diagnostic perspective, enabling us to greater understand the prognosis for patients and similarly evaluate whether there are targeted treatments that, that would be available. In terms of assessment of the patient themselves, we're no longer in a situation where you just have to think about whether the patient can tolerate intensive forms of chemotherapy. Disease-modifying treatments such as venetoclax azocytidine can be transformational. And so a robust assessment of their patient, the patient and their ability to tolerate such therapy becomes absolutely vital through means of geriatric assessment, performance score, comorbidity. And then finally, uh, in relation to treatment. For such a long time, we've had inadequate therapies for this group of patients uh, with drugs such as lodocytarabine and azocytidine really being uh, insufficient to improve quality of life and extend it. Now, with the addition of venetoclax, particularly to azocytidine, uh, we're seeing marked improvement in terms of responses, extension of life, and with that marked improvement in terms of quality of life. So the whole approach to managing patients who are frail and old with AML has completely changed. I'd like to encourage all listeners to this podcast to actually read the uh, detailed paper that we've provided for the British Society of Haematology. I think it's a fairly uh, reasonable summary and along with my co-authors, we've been able to incorporate all the relevant uh, references uh, in some detail there for further reading that may be of interest to listeners. So in conclusion to this podcast, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for listening. And I'd like to invite you to visit the BSH website uh, to listen to more exciting podcasts from the British Society for Haematology about various important guidelines. <laughs>